welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno. Today on the show, I welcome Dr. Benjamin Bickman. Dr. Bickman is a metabolic research scientist, professor of cell biology and physiology at Brigham Young University, co-founder of Health Code, and author of the recent book, Why We Get Sick, The Hidden Epidemic at the Root of Most Chronic Disease and How to Fight It. So this hidden epidemic that is teased in the subtitle of the book is insulin resistance. And this condition is simply ubiquitous, impacting nearly a billion people around the world. And most people who have it are unaware of it. And I was one of them. So in our conversation, we explore the relationship between insulin resistance and the most insidious chronic diseases including heart disease, cancer, dementia, and diabetes, as well as insulin resistance's impact on infertility in men and women, PCOS, and erectile dysfunction. We unpack the three primary causes of insulin resistance, including stress, inflammation, and chronically elevated insulin, which is so often a result of the sugar-laden standard American diet. We discuss the protocols to prevent and reverse insulin resistance, as well as the pros and cons of popular drug interventions like Ozempic and Metformin. But before we dive in, we are so grateful to those of you who write reviews on Apple Podcasts that we created a special offer for you, 30 days of free commune membership. That's all access for a whole month. Just scroll down to the review section and tap write a review, then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your review to receive your free all access for 30 days. Note that if you're on your laptop, you'll need to click listen on Apple podcast to open the app. And while you're there, you might as well subscribe. Okay, this was a conversation that I've been looking forward to for some time. It's very personal for me. So without further delay, I present to you, Dr. Benjamin Bickman. Dr. Benjamin Bickman, what a treat. Welcome to the Commune Podcast. Yeah, hey, Jeff. Thanks so much for the invitation. Yeah, I've been looking forward to it. So I, I recently finished uh, your book, which is just masterfully constructed, Why We Get Sick. Um, and you point clearly to this hidden epidemic that's, that sits upstream, if you will, from so many of our most common uh, chronic diseases, and that, of course, is insulin resistance. Um, and this is a condition that I had personally, um, but it, it's a condition that impacts so many people, which is why it's so important and so many people don't know about. Um, so maybe we could just start on the ground floor um, and talk about insulin just as a hormone and its primary role in the body. Yeah. Right. And in fact, that's a nice place to start because I sometimes am concerned that I give the impression of insulin just being a villain, mm. that it is this monolithic evil in the body. And that, that, of course, is not true. It is absolutely a hormone of uh, essential to life. And the absence of insulin is a death sentence over the matter of generally a few weeks. You know, in other words, 
uh, an untreated type 1 diabetic uh, will, will die. So insulin's thematic effect is to promote the growth of a cell, it, which is, of course, we can see why that would be so important. We need cells to grow. But never-ending growth, of course, is cancer. So we need cells to know when to not grow or when to stop growing, when to die. Insulin doesn't want to have any of those effects. It only wants growth. And so it becomes one of the many instruments in this orchestra of endocrinology where you have some hormones, insulin being the most powerful, promoting growth, and you have other hormones, which are myriad, um, that are promoting, well, I, I don't want to say death, but promoting breakdown. And this is the balance of the word that we call metabolism. Metabolism is simply the balance between anabolic reactions or anabolism and the catabolic processes. So the building up of molecules or the breaking down of those molecules. Insulin is very, very firmly on the anabolic side, not only promoting growth, but also inhibiting breakdown. And one of the reasons it's important to appreciate insulin's effects is that it's one of the few hormones that affects every single cell of the body. Mm. And, and I mean that literally. It doesn't matter what the cell is, if you if you take it out and look at it, it will have little little docks, a little receptor um, for insulin. In other words, a little doorway just designed for insulin to come and knock on to tell the cell to do something. Every single cell of the body will respond to insulin in some way. Thus, when we start to explore problems of insulin, we can begin to appreciate, as you alluded to, some of its the incredible array of consequences. And it becomes not particularly surprising when we look at problems of the brain or problems of the bones or problems of the liver or et cetera that are impacted by uh, insulin resistance. Hmm. Yeah, I'm so glad that you framed it um, in that way that so many of these hormones or chemical signals in the body work kind of on this teeter-totter, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, for example, glucagon, which uh, I think needs a, a better PR agent, um, <laughs> since uh, insulin gets talked about a lot, but it's it's countervailing or counterposing molecule, um, which is more catabolic in nature, doesn't really get talked about. But like you said, I think you know, what we're always striving for when we're uh, you know, when we're trying to instantiate health in our life is that delicate, sensitive balance between growth on one side, which is anabolic or insulin related, and then repair and, and restoration. Um, but I think we would both agree that we live in a culture that sanctifies endless growth, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, well said. So perhaps you can um, unwind a little bit what creates a resistance to this very molecule of insulin. Mm -hmm. Right. So you, uh, I'll remind everyone of what, what you'd mentioned, and I'll elaborate on that, which is that, you know, why even talk about this? It's because this is the single most common health problem worldwide. Mm. Uh, within the United States, uh, we estimate that up to 88% of adults are insulin resistant. Wow. And as, as much as we think here in the U.S., you know, we have a tendency, I consider it to be somewhat unfortunate, to think that the United States is the worst in everything, that, you know, metabolically, we're the fattest, we're the sickest. And that's actually not, not even nearly true. Uh, when you look across the world, rates of obesity and insulin resistance are higher across all of the Middle East. And even throughout most of 
Southeast Asia and Asia in North Asia. Uh, these are problems that are um, considerably relevant worldwide, and, and certainly the Pacific Islands are, are way up there, well beyond the United States. Even within our own backyard, Mexico has higher rates than we do. So as bad as the problem is in the U.S., and it is, it is, it is even worse in many, many areas around the world. So insulin resistance being the most common problem, we it behooves us to understand its origins. And there are what I consider to be three primary uh, origins each independent of the other. Now, just by way of clarity, when I use the word primary, I have my own particular definition there because there are, there are numerous noxious stimuli that will induce insulin resistance in, in various experimental models. Mm. And, and that's why when I invoke the word primary, I mean that these three causes, causes which I'll elaborate more on a moment, they have been shown to cause insulin resistance in Isolated cell cultures, you know, when you start growing cells in a little petri dish, they've been shown to cause insulin resistance in laboratory rodents, you know, a commonly used model in biomedical laboratories, and in humans, you know, the pinnacle of all creation, but humans at the top, and these three primary causes will still induce insulin resistance in the human. And the three primary causes are, in any, no, no particular order, one is stress, hmm. one is inflammation, and one is too much insulin. And, and Jeff, if you'll allow me to hijack the conversation for just another moment, I'll elaborate on them just a bit. And when I say stress, that's a not unlike inflammation. It's a term that has, uh, it's a very loaded term culturally. There's a lot of, um, so, uh, a lot of awareness and interest in that term. And, and so I want to make sure we understand it correctly. Uh, and with stress, I mean the elevation of the prototypical stress hormones, and that is cortisol and epinephrine, also known as adrenaline. These are the two stress hormones of the body. So when I teach my, my graduate students in endocrinology about the stress response, I teach it in the context. I frame it around those two hormones. And these two hormones have almost nothing in common. Cortisol and epinephrine are totally different types of hormones. They fall into different classes of hormones. They're produced from different cell types. They move through the bloodstream in different ways. They activate cells throughout the body in very, very different ways. The one thing they have in common is that they both want to increase blood glucose levels, and they do so very, very quickly. A little shot of adrenaline, blood glucose is going to climb. A shot of cortisol, blood glucose is going to climb. Well, that, of course, puts them at odds with the hormone insulin, one of whose primary jobs is to reduce blood glucose. Now, insulin does a lot of things, but its most famous, I'm not even saying it's most important, but its most famous job, its most well-known job is to lower glucose. And so we can see the conflict. If we have put ourselves in a situation or despite our best efforts, we find ourselves in a situation where we have an emotional or a physical stress that is increasing our stress hormones. This can be something even as benign as lack of sleep or overtraining. Um, then we will become demonstrably more insulin resistant as they're pushing glucose up. Insulin must work harder to push it down. Mm. Now, inflammation is another very, very loaded term. And it's one that I confess I sometimes roll my eyes at a little bit because I believe it's invoked too readily. You know, people wanna drop the word inflammation just too frequently and blame everything on inflammation. Uh, and of course, inflammation is, has a very necessary role. If it weren't for inflammation, we would die at the slightest sniffle. 
You know, the immune system is utterly vital to our survival and even just our repair and recovery. You know, when we are recovering from a workout, it's an inflammation process that's improving the strength and integrity of the muscle and the bones. It's using the same cells, the same processes that we would consider to be only relevant if we're fighting an infection. No, it, it, this is a, this is a, a skill set or a bag of tools that can be used in myriad ways from fighting an infection to healing and recovering or from, from even something like a workout or a scratch. Uh, so with inflammation, when the inflammatory proteins are elevated in the blood, and these are referred to as cytokines, then they promote insulin resistance at tissues. This was actually the work of my postdoctoral fellowship that I did with Duke uh, Medical School many years ago. It was actually elaborating or elucidating rather on the specific pathway within the cell that when you have a cytokine come and bind to the cell, activating an immune pathway, which every cell has, oddly enough or unexpectedly, um, that will promote insulin resistance within the cell. And this is noticed um, as we have more and more people wearing continuous glucose monitors. I have mine from levels right now. You got yours. Mm -hmm. um, as people wear more and more CGMs, they will notice um, when they're, th that their glycemic variability is really going haywire and it will often predicate them starting to feel a little sick, a scratchy throat, a runny nose. And, and in fact, it can almost be used not only as an indicator, but even a predict of a predictor of the onset of an illness, a cold or a flu, let alone something more severe. So inflammation, again, totally independent of any other variable is also capable of, of causing insulin resistance. Now, the third and final, and what I consider to be the most important, is chronically elevated insulin. This um, contributor takes a little bit of thinking in order to see the, the model or the way it interacts, because what ends up happening is the creation of a vicious cycle. Um, and I do believe it's the most relevant because it is the one that not only can you really identify um, very, very well through blood tests, it's also very responsive to interventions. In other words, if, if we were meeting with someone, Jeff, and, and we sat down with the person and we say, well, your stress hormones are elevated, um, that's contributing to your insulin resistance. Well, the individual would say, well, how do I lower my stress hormones? And we would say, well, we don't really know because we're not sure why your stress hormones are high. It's just, it's a difficult knob to really grasp. It's, it's a little slippery. Mm -hmm. The same goes with inflammation. If we noticed that someone had higher levels of C-reactive protein and they would say, well, how do I lower my C-reactive protein? We would say, well, we don't really know what's causing it. Is it something you're breathing? Is it something you're eating? Is it an autoimmune disorder? We don't really know. In contrast to both of those, insulin, if it's elevated and we can measure that easily, we know exactly what to do to lower it. And I won't get ahead of myself because that can be part of the later conversation, but too much insulin will promote insulin resistance. And this is reflective of a fundamental biological principle. Too much of something will promote a resistance to that something. And this is uh, almost an eternal truth, whether it is sort of body, uh, body, mind, or soul. If we are incessantly um, inundated with a noxious stimulus, we become resistant to that stimulus. And we need more and more and more of it in order to get the same response that we used to. And, and, and now when we, when we view this through the lens of the modern diet, which worldwide 
the average, um, like the, the typical global diet con uh, consumes almost 70% of all of its calories from carbohydrates. And it's carbohydrates, not proteins, not fats, that spike insulin uh, the most. In fact, by a wide margin. And so it's easy to see then, as we continue to lay this out, that you have the average individual globally who wakes up in the morning and eats a starchy, sugary breakfast. Their insulin levels have been coming down overnight and they immediately ramp them up, easily boosting insulin levels by 10 times, easily. Mm. And then even in an, in an insulin sensitive person, it may take up to three hours for the insulin to come back down to normal. And if you're an insulin resistant person, it can take five or six hours to come back to normal. But of course, long before then, the person is now having a mid-morning snack, which once again is something sugary and refined. And so the, before insulin even has a chance to start cresting, they've bumped it back up again. And then the same thing happens with a starchy lunch, an afternoon snack, and an evening, uh, their dinner, and then an evening snack. And so the average person is spending every waking moment and even several hours into their non-waking moments in a state of elevated insulin and too much insulin whether it's isolated cells or rodents or humans, contributes and independently causes insulin resistance. And, and thus, having framed it that way, the solution starts to become obvious, although we complicate it with medications and things. But this is one of the drums that I beat the loudest. You've allowed me to beat one of them already, which is just emphasizing the importance of insulin resistance in the global conversation of non-communicable diseases but it's also emphasizing the importance of scrutinizing what goes in our mouth and how frequently it's going in our mouth in order to understand where the insulin resistance is coming from. In other words, why has it become the most common, most prevalent metabolic problem or overall problem worldwide? It's because of how we eat. Hmm. So incredibly well said, Ben, thank you. I, you know, there's a philosophical point there, I think, um, that you underwrite this notion that the excess of a molecule in the body will result in a resistance to itself, yep. <laughs> which is a kind of a huge light bulb. Um, and we know that by analogy with caffeine or with, uh, or I, I guess some degree with alcohol. Or even antibi antibiotics, right? They will say, sure. don't, you know, don't overuse your antibiotics because the little bacteria will become resistant to it. Or chemotherapeutics, you know, cancer killing drugs. They got to give you 15 th chemotherapeutics at a time to prevent them from becoming really resistant to one of them because it is the nature of biology to adapt. And, and so whatever mm -hmm. the, and I would even say the nature of the soul for better or for worse. And I don't mean to invoke, you know, speak in a less scientific term, although this is something I personally very much ascribe to. There is, there is, there is a fundamental lesson learned or, or evident in the fact that too much insulin causes insulin resistance. This is a, a beautiful principle that I feel applies to many aspects of our life. You know, some degree of insulin resistance is actually an adaptive mechanism. Uh, and of course, we evolved over tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years with these evolutionary advantages, for example, to become insulin resistant at the right moments 
to, let's say, store fat, to warehouse energy, because we knew scarcity was on the horizon, right? And we needed that stored energy, uh, you know, to exist. But now, as you've underlined, um, we are in a, we have a surfeit of uh, refined shelf-stable calories at, at, at our disposal that are keeping us in this kind of state of overabundance, if you will, uh, such that, you know, we're eating too many carbs, carbs are breaking down to glucose in the, in the bloodstream, stimulating insulin from the pancreas, and over and over and over again, uh, we're, that's leading to both a, a kind of ironic state of insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia, as you say, you know, the, the overabundance of insulin uh, in the bloodstream. So what are- Now, Jeff, yeah. let's just, let's just yeah. really um, put an exclamation mark on what you just said, which is um, the, the two-fold aspect of what we call insulin resistance, because yeah. many, many people misunderstand what insulin resistance even is. Insulin resistance is a coin with two sides. Um, and anyone who invokes insulin resistance without appreciating both sides, uh, if you'll pardon me for saying it, they don't know what they're talking about. Insulin resistance on one side is the idea that the name um, evokes, which is this idea that insulin isn't working very well. It's, in other words, it's coming to the cell. And to come back to that analogy, it's knocking on the door of the cell, but the cell isn't listening anymore. It's not answering the door and responding. Now, that is not a universal phenomenon within the body. Some cells aren't listening to insulin anymore. In other words, they become resistant, but some cells are still listening. They're still responding. Mm -hmm. Insulin comes and knocks and they open. Now that sounds like a good thing, but it becomes problematic if we return to the coin. Now I'm really getting deep in the analogies, aren't I? And we flip <laughs> the coin over and we see the other side of the coin, which is, as you just said, hyperinsulinemia or an elevated level of insulin in the blood. That is both cause and consequence of insulin resistance. It's contributing to it. But then as the body isn't listening to insulin anymore, then we start to make more of it, which contributes to more insulin resistance and, and thus the, again, increased production of insulin to try to overcome the, the deafening to insulin. We keep cranking up the volume, little knowing that that's what's creating the deafness, causing it, forcing us to continue to crank up the volume. Now, when we come back to those two cells that I mentioned a moment ago, the one cell that is becoming deaf or not responding to insulin, it's, it's now it has a lot more insulin. And so we've been able to restore some of the response. We're creaking the door open. But the cell that has been as responsive to insulin as ever is now just being overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. it, it, they, they, he, they hear every knock and they're opening every knock. And one of the most um, sort of ironic uh, manifestations of this is infertility. Mm -hmm. Infertility is a perfect example of both of these situations where you look at the most common form of infertility in men, it's erectile dysfunction. In fact, some biomedical scientists and clinicians say that erectile dysfunction is the one of the earliest symptoms of insulin resistance in otherwise healthy younger men in their 30s. That if a man comes in with ED, he probably has insulin resistance. And this is an effect that is mediated in the blood vessel. For normal erectile function, you need to have blood vessels dilate to increase blood flow. And insulin actually plays a part in that vasodilation. Unless the endothelium, the lining of the blood vessel, becomes insulin resistant. 
Now insulin's coming and trying to promote an exaggerated dilation, but it can't. That's a direct phenomenon or a result rather of the insulin resistance. Now on the other hand, the most common form of infertility in females is polycystic ovary syndrome, PCOS. Mm. In PCOS, the problem is when insulin is inhibiting the conversion of testosterone to estrogens. Most people don't appreciate the fact that all estrogens, the prototypical female hormone, were once androgens, or namely testosterone, the prototypical male hormones. And there's, a horm there's an enzyme that mediates that conversion that will take a testosterone and turn it into the estrogens. Insulin inhibits that. Naturally, it provides just a very modest inhibition, but the cells of the ovary are so sensitive to insulin that as insulin levels keep climbing higher and higher in the body, they continue to listen. A typical female here, you know, just is listening to everything. It's so responsive, so sensitive. And I say that joking that my wife's gonna listen to this later and really let me, really let me hear it. Um, you know, but, but it's responding to the insulin very, very well. In this case, harmfully so, where that excess of insulin is inhibiting that enzyme too much. Mm -hmm. And now her ovaries are less able to convert the testosterone into estrogens. Thus, her estrogen levels fail to reach this big peak, which is necessary for the ovulation, and she fails to ovulate. And mm. thus, she has PCOS. Mm. So interesting. So yeah, we can really draw a straight line there from our SAD, our standard American diet, to things like infertility. So just to kind of recap there a tiny bit, these hormones are kind of regulatory in many ways. So, you know, too much insulin is going to inhibit, I think what you said is aromatase, which yep. is key for converting androgens, testosterone to estrogen. And we know that estrogen is absolutely essential uh, for the ovulating process. So that might be one of the reasons contributing to low fertility rates for for women. For men, um, it seems like infertility has two different components, both physical, as you described, which is a erectile dysfunction, but is there also a, uh, a hormonal side? Are we, are we seeing lower rates of sperm count, for example, in men? And does that have any connection to insulin resistance? Yes, yeah, sure does. Yes, yes. So indeed, even spermatogenesis, um, the, the process of you know creating the sperm, as the name suggests, is affected. But not only is it a direct effect of the insulin resistance in the body, it's also an indirect effect through the fat cells. And I'm, I'm a little reluctant to bring in the fat cells into this conversation mm -hmm. because it opens up a whole new tangent. Thing, yeah. It's okay. Um, yeah, so, so I won't go too far down that path other than to say fat cells do play a very important role when we look across all the tissues of the body um, that starts accelerating um, insulin resistance and really promoting it, you know, kind of aggressively spreading it. Um, but the fat cell also plays a direct role in male fertility because male fat cells have a unique uh, phenomenon where when they start to grow, they begin to express that exact same enzyme that is in such high levels in the ovaries. Now, testes have aromatase as well, albeit at much lower levels. When you combine that with the fact that the fat cells now, his fat cells are beginning to express aromatase, it's almost as if, as if his fat cells are beginning to act like ovaries, taking not only a reduced amount of testosterone already, he's producing less testosterone, 
but it's pulling in the testosterone and releasing it as estrogens, wow. which is compounding, of course, a myriad um, functions within his body, not only affecting how he starts to store his fat, because it's sex hormones that determine where we store fat, um, but it also, of course, begins to affect um, spermatogenesis, which hmm. estrogens, if there's too much estrogens, it, be, it, of course, disrupts that process. So by that logic, would you say that excess adiposity, particularly particularly visceral adiposity in men um, contributes to kind of low T, for example. So sometimes you might see someone who has a lot of belly fat and you might make that, that, that logical jump to say, okay, that, might, that person might be lacking in, in testosterone. And then, you know, just to personalize it a little bit, a few years ago, I was starting to develop what I call early onset man boobs um, yeah, and, yeah. and not necessarily just a cups either. Um, <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, as I'm trying to pull different threads, as I learn more from, from you and, and some of your other colleagues, I'm trying to think about this is like, what was my excess belly fat essentially contributing to the conversion of testosterone to estrogen and then producing some of these um, secondary sexual characteristics like like man boobs. Is that a fair um, oh, uh, yeah. Newtonian <laughs> explanation? Yeah, yeah, no, no, right. Yeah, yeah it sure is. In fact, you nailed it. I, I would, uh, so uh, again, to just reiterate that, um, it is sex hormones that determine where we store fat. And the reason little Jill starts to look different from little Johnny is because of the changes in sex hormones. You know, as a, as a child, their body looks very similar. You couldn't tell them apart from the back. Right. But then the older they get, the more the body type starts to change, and that's a result of sex hormones. So yes, if a man's estrogen levels are getting too high, he will begin to store fat more and more in female places like breasts and hips. But this also, I think, if we can see it through this direction, which is your, your, your excess fat tissue is promoting the conversion of your testosterone to estrogens, I believe it's very, very helpful because too often, and I know it's become big business, um, we have this paradigm where we've flipped it, where we say, well, the problem is right at your, your testes. You're just not making enough testosterone, so let's just give you more right. and we'll replace, we will replace the testosterone coming from your testes. Um, and sure, if you bump up a guy's testosterone, of course he's gonna lose weight and get more muscle. You're also atrophying the testes at the same time. Now, I know that's a nuanced conversation, um, and there may be instances where TRT or some intervention to increase testosterone is certainly warranted. I just think for the majority of men who've been told they're low T, what we should be probably saying is you're high fat. Mm, so yeah. let's let's let the low T correct itself after we correct the, the high fat. Once we reduce the fat on your body, we will allow the testosterone that your gonads are already producing to actually stay as testosterone through the blood and have the effect that we want it to have. One really jaw-dropping um, piece of the book is when you talked about um, menarche, so the, the onset of puberty in, in girls uh, mm -hmm. specifically, and the relationship between insulin resistance and then and leptin in the fat cells and how that might be leading to kind of earlier menarche. Can you unwind that a, a little bit? 
Oh yeah, I'd be happy to. Yeah, this is one of the um, aspects of development that really fascinates me. And we see this trend globally uh, and it's it's aggressive as well. Yeah. The age at which young women are starting puberty, whereas you know the, the, init the initiation of menses or you know, the most obvious sign of, of puberty development really, or the most sort of famous sign in females, it's happening at younger and younger ages. And it, it is a direct effect of kids being fatter at younger ages. Most people will hear the hormone leptin and only think of obesity. And that's because it actually is derived from the Greek word for thin, leptos. Leptin was discovered as a hormone in animals, animals that had a spontaneous mutation in the ability to produce leptin, although they didn't even know what the hormone was at the time. This is, of course, decades ago. They, of course, got fantastically obese. And their, their appetite was, was incessant. It knew no bounds. They would eat their own feces. These animals were so hungry. And, and they, of course, got enormously fat. Um, and they found um, by isolating the blood and, and, and detecting, okay, there's a protein that's missing. And when we give them this protein that we're going to call leptin, boy, look how skinny they got. And so that led to clinical trials in humans where they said, let's take obese humans and give them leptin. And it did nothing because we are not people there are instances incredibly rare of leptin mutations but the average person who's overweight has too much leptin like they have too much insulin they've become leptin resistant just like they've become insulin resistant so this is a phenomenon that applies across many hormones and so to bring it back to leptin in the fat cells leptin is produced from fat cells and insulin typically wants to inhibit leptin but when the fat cells become insulin resistant now you have both of them climbing higher and higher, reinforcing the, the problem. And leptin, as much as we, to, to come back to my point from two minutes ago, as much as we look at leptin as only being relevant to obesity, it is utterly and totally essential to fertility. Mm. If you don't have enough leptin in your bloodstream, you will not go through puberty. Or if you've gone through puberty and you don't have enough leptin in your bloodstream, you will stop being fertile. In men and women, it's just women need much more leptin to drive the process than men do. And that's just a natural result of the fact that women carry the metabolic burden associated with fertility. So it makes more sense that their brain, that their body would be more sensitive to the need for leptin. But to flip all of this on its head, if you have a young girl whose fat cells are growing crazy because of how she's eating, how the parents are allowing her to eat, I have to say, um, then she will have higher leptin too soon. And that starts to stimulate the brain to initiate puberty too soon. And now she's starting to become a young woman when she's still supposed to just be a child. Yeah. And um, yeah. And if you're, I mean, I think in the book, it, it mentioned a German study, or maybe I've read that somewhere else where in the mid 1800s, girls were going through menarche at around 16.6 years. Now that number, I believe it's closer to 10 or 10 and a half. Yep. Um, so that is a precipitous uh, decline in the age over a relatively short period of time when you consider the vast mm -hmm. swath of human history. Um, and, you know, leptin, I think, gets thrown around often as this satiety hormone but I think the way that you're framing it is really interesting. It's almost more of like the enough hormone. It's it's the the signal that goes to your brain in a young woman that says, I have enough stored energy to undertake this mammoth um, 
a burden or, or I don't want to cast yep. childbirth as a burden, but you yeah, know, yeah. but basically this mammoth task of, of gestating and, uh, and go for it, you know, release FSH and, and, and off we go <laughs> and, and you can ovulate and there, you know, whether or not it's appropriate for a girl to be able to get pregnant at 10, that's a different conversation, but certainly all the secondary sexual characteristics that come along with that, the widening uh, of hips and the development of breasts and the aids of social media and the sexualization of kids. I mean, it's just like, ah, <laughs> there's oh, yeah. so much to get our heads around there. And it, and it really does often come back to really what we're putting in our mouths. And as you say, what we're putting in our kids' mouths or allowing our kids to eat. So, you know, it's just so amazing when you start to unravel so many of these conditions, um, uh, that are so prevalent in, in modernity and you start to go upstream, you know, insulin, <laughs> hyperinsulinemia and insulin resistance is so often, um, right at, right there at the headwaters. Um, I know that you also do, um, in your lab, you're, you're actually looking at tissue. Um, and maybe we can kind of jump over to, uh, neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, for example, because you're finding something really, really interesting in hippocampal tissue as it relates to insulin and insulin resistance. Can you talk about that a little bit? I'd be delighted. Yeah, that's a work that I'm, I'm very proud of. It mm -hmm. is the work of my PhD student who just defended her dissertation, Erin Saito. Nice. Um, she, she came to my lab with a very strong um, uh, neuroscience interest. And I'm not a neuroscientist. I am a mitochondrial fat cell scientist. But I had been paying attention to this growing conversation suggesting that Alzheimer's disease is one more manifestation one more branch from the diseased tree that we call insulin resistance. And in this, just by way of background, I, I need to emphasize just how important this new area or this new paradigm is. The prevailing and classic paradigm, even still prevailing, unfortunately, of, of uh, Alzheimer's disease is that it is a result of plaques accumulating in the brain. And the evidence that pokes holes in this is so profound um, that it's shocking that this theory even still exists. Um, we know now from a report of just a couple of years ago that the very original data that that theory is based on was falsified. So literally the lab that published the seminal paper that started the whole conversation falsified its findings. So that article was retracted, but you know, you, you can't lock the beast back up. It's already out now. Yeah. The train's already rolling down the tracks. Um, but it, we see this time and again. So, so several lines of evidence that destroy this theory. One being that when you look post-mortem at brain tissue from people who died without Alzheimer's disease and people who died with Alzheimer's disease, you see no correlation of, with regards to who has plaques predicting a disease. People with the Alzheimer's brains had plaques or they didn't. People who died with no sign of Alzheimer's disease had plaques or they didn't. There was no real um, correlation that suggests that any kind of causality. Additionally, we have drugs that have been shown to reduce plaques mm -hmm. and yet they don't improve cognition. Yeah. And so this whole theory is dead and, and, and thus we should be interested in looking at other theories. And that brings us to the metabolic theory, which to elaborate very simply is to, uh, I can invoke the idea of, uh, of a hybrid engine um, where the brain is a hybrid and it can rely on two fuels, namely glucose, which is the one that we only ever hear about, or ketones. 
Many people will say, many people don't even acknowledge the role of ketones in fueling the brain. And even if they do, they'll say, well, the brain prefers glucose. And that is demonstrably false. Work from Stephen Cunane in Northern Canada, he has shown this by looking at the actual amount of glucose versus ketone the brain will use. If you start to get, even if a, even if a body has twice as much glucose in its blood as it has ketones, it will have already shifted its metabolic demands or use to be getting up to 70% of its energy from ketones over the glucose. Hmm. So this is a massive preference, hmm. uh, clearly, because even again, even though ketones may be at half the level in the blood of the glucose, the brain has already shifted over to relying mostly on a, on a ratio of almost three to one of mostly uh, ketone over glucose. So a clear preference. And this is doubly relevant when we consider that the brain within the hippocampus, the memory and learning center, has insulin-dependent glucose transporters. Hmm. And so if the brain has these two fuels, um, and but the brain's becoming insulin resistant, which it does, its ability to use glucose becomes compromised because glucose requires some degree of insulin involvement to be used. However, its ability to use ketones is totally uncompromised. But and, and so we would say, well, then just like some, some metabolic version of Marie Antoinette, we would say, well, let the brain eat ketones. Let them eat ketones. But, <laughs> but what if the ketones aren't there? Yeah. And Because this is how most people live their life. Back to the average person who's spending every waking moment in a state of elevated insulin, that's a particular problem because insulin inhibits the production of ketones. If insulin is up, ketone levels are down, rock bottom, zero. And so the same situation that's creating the insulin resistant in the brain, insulin resistance in the brain, reducing the brain's ability to use glucose is the same scenario, namely insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia, that's reducing the access, the availability of the only other fuel that the brain can use, mm -hmm. namely ketones. And so it's, you know, everyone may remember the rhyme of the ancient mariner, water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. It's the brain saying glucose, glucose everywhere, but I can't use any of it. We are hyperglycemic. The bloodstream is filled with glucose and I can't get it. Well, ketones is, is the life raft. It's us tossing in and, and allowing the brain to suddenly have some a, a savior, a saving energy source. Whereas in the average individual, it's not there. And this is being supported more and more in human trials. You can, uh, and I want to be careful to say there's no evidence to show that ketones cure Alzheimer's disease. No, unfortunately, it appears that the best you can do is have temporary improvements, but you see it nonetheless. You can take someone with full-blown Alzheimer's disease and, for example, have them draw out the face of a clock you know, an analog clock, and it is just a jumble of mess. You can't know what they're trying to do at all. Give them a ketone drink, mm -hmm. and then an hour later, have them repeat that process. And you it's a little sloppy, but you can see that they've drawn the face of a clock. So this is documented more and more in case studies. It's incredibly promising. And, and, and indeed, one of the reasons why I think ketones are beneficial, I never want to be viewed as a kind of Bible pounding advocate of ketogenic diets unless the person has a cognitive deficit. Mm. If someone's experiencing a neurological disorder, whether it's Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's or migraine headaches, I very much advocate or at least encourage a person to try a ketogenic diet because so many neurological disorders 
appear appear to be improved if the brain can use ketones as a fuel source. Mm, so interesting. Yeah, I know that I believe it was in the 1920s the ketogenic diet was being used as a fasting mimicking diet for the treatment of epilepsy before there were epileptic drugs. And so that's right. With some, and, and even yeah. in that same decade, Jeff, yeah. was the first papers that I've ever found showing total resolution of migraine headaches in, in many people. Mm. That there was this one paper that documented by patient what their experience was. And many times it would say, you know, patient A um, with initiation of ketosis has never experienced another migraine, you know, and that comment was quite wow. frequent. So when you talk about a ketone drink, what you're talking about in that particular instance is the consuming of like exogenous ketones, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, because obviously, well, perhaps not obviously, but in a state of hyperinsulinemia, your body is not going to go into natural ketosis, right? You're, you're not going to be That's able right. to endogenously produce ketones. Is that correct? That's absolutely right. Yeah. And, and so in those instances that I mentioned, those case studies, it was exogenous ketones. One of them, maybe more now, used also coconut oil, mm. you know, because medium, medium chain fats will get right. burned really, really fast and produce ketones because that's all ketones are. I'm sure everyone knows this. Ketones are simply products of a lot of fat burning. When the body's burning fat at a very high rate, which it can only do if insulin is low, then it will, it will, it's almost like the body's burning more fat than it knows what to do with. And that excess starts to go down the pathway of ketogenesis. Sort of an off-road here just for one second. Do type 1 diabetics, because they do not produce insulin, are they in a constant state of ketosis? Ah. Yeah, so if they aren't treating themselves with insulin, if, right. So yeah. if, if you have a type 1 diabetic, in fact, this is a powerful um, example of the necessity of insulin in, in promoting fat growth. You know, there's still this active debate. Why do we get fat? Some will say it's just pure calorie number. It's just pure thermodynamics. Others will say, no, it's pure hormone. Of course, both are relevant. And this is mo no more obvious than ever than, than it is in an untreated diabetic where a type 1 diabetic will learn that if they eat whatever they want, but skip their insulin injections, they will be as skinny as they want. Yeah. Now, because if insulin is zero, fat burning is going all out gangbusters. Hmm. And, and, but um, the problem with that, of course, is that when fat burning is unchecked, so too is ketogenesis. And ketones, like many molecules are in the body, have an acidifying effect. Now, I'm reluctant to say that because people misinterpret what I'm saying. But a, a lot of molecules in the bloodstream have an alkalinizing or an acidifying effect that doesn't make them good or bad as much as people obsess over that. But ketones do have an acidifying effect. And the body naturally has systems in place to more than buffer and make up for that and keep pH in a normal range. Unless insulin is zero, now ketones go 10 times higher than they should literally 10 times easily, 10 times higher. And now it's overwhelmed the body's ability to buffer. Now the person goes from ketosis, which is a normal, which is like a, a fire in a fireplace to the whole house burning down. Hmm. So ketoacidosis is a lethal scenario, but it is simply a manifestation of a body that can't stop burning fat, which itself is a result of not enough insulin to stop the fat burning. Hmm. Okay, so would it be fair to then draw the conclusion from there that low insulin 
um, increases basal metabolic rate? It sure does. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, you. Oh, I love this point because this was work done in the early 1900s from two legends in the field of cell biology and physiology, <clears throat> namely, um, let's see if I can remember them, Elliot P. Joslin, who is the kind of the godfather of endocrinology, like literally wrote the first textbooks and, and has the most famous diabetes center, the Joslin Diabetes Center, named after him, and his collaboration with Francis Benedict. Who, whose Benedict equation is still used to this day to assess metabolic rate in people based on height and weight, et cetera. They found in the early 1900s that severe diabetes, which we would just call untreated type 1 diabetes, um, these people had a metabolic rate that was up to 30% higher than it's supposed to be based on the size of their body because it's generally size that determines metabolic rate. Um, and, and, and later on, we have studies that show that the moment you give the diabetic insulin, metabolic rate drops exactly to where you think it should. Even in people with type 2 diabetes who already have high insulin, it's just not working very well, so their glucose has climbed. If you give them insulin, their metabolic rate will slow down significantly. And this is, once again, reflective of the, fact of the very first part of our conversation, which is insulin wants to grow things. You can't grow things if you're burning them. And so it's, it makes sense yeah. that one of insulin's effects or one of its mediating abilities to promote growth is to inhibit metabolic rate. It's to inhibit the rate at which the body's doing everything. It wants to build stuff. It doesn't want to be breaking things down. And if metabolic rate's going too high, if the RPMs are too high, of course, we're, we're going to be breaking more than we're building. Yeah. And insulin abhors that. Yeah, so interesting. It, it, it seems like this is kind of where... Um, thermodynamics or sort of calories in, calories out sort of intersects with endocrinology or hormones to, to some degree. Exactly. Yeah. Um, That's exactly right. So, Jeff, when these two camps go to war, um, although I very much fall on the insulin side because nobody on the insulin side is revoking the laws of thermodynamics. If anything, all we're doing is simply saying to the thermodynamic purists, the, pure, the calorie purists, is you, calorie purists, want to only invoke the first law of thermodynamics, which is the conservation of energy. You, you, you store it or you burn it. We say, well, how convenient that you're overlooking the second law of thermodynamics, which is entropy, right. that there's chaos within the system. And that when we look at the entire body, if insulin is low, not only are we burning more energy, metabolic rate demonstrably goes up, and not even a little bit, several hundred calories a day. And two, if insulin is low, you're making ketones. And when you make ketones, you breathe out ketones or you urinate out ketones. And every ketone has a caloric value roughly comparable to glucose. Mm -hmm. So once again, we have this, this chaos in the system where people say you got to burn it or you're going to store it. And we say, well, unless insulin's low, then you're going to waste it. Right. And you're just dumping energy back out into the universe in the, into, from this open system invoking thermodynamics into the closed system of the entire universe, which is, of course, grand in scale. So both of these ideologies have value. It's just I choose to pound, beat the drum of the insulin side because that's the one that too few people appreciate. And even if they've heard it, they want to ignore it. Mm, mm, that's so good. Okay. Um, so I think we've done a good job um, underscoring how insulin resistance is at the source of so many of these pathologies and chronic conditions. Um, we've also, I think, really pointed to the 
uh, high carbohydrate diet or the standard American diet that's filled with kind of refined grains and uh, and, and sugars and ultra processed foods, et cetera, as a chief contributor. What are some of the other chief contributors to uh, to insulin resistance? Would you say? Yeah. So now that we've discussed the primary causes, which each is independently capable of causing insulin resistance in every studied biomedical model, then we can um, you know highlight the secondary causes. And these can be things like seed oils, for example. I very much believe seed oils are relevant to this. They have been shown in cell culture studies to directly cause insulin resistance at, say, fat cells and, and other cells. The reason I don't consider it as, uh, as a primary cause is simply because uh, it, it hasn't been, you know, really, like if you give a human, uh, you know, a, a load of, of a seed oil, you're not going to necessarily be promoting, uh, you know, chronic insulin resistance. That, those studies are just lacking currently, you know, and, and perhaps the data will catch up and someday I will bump seed oils from a secondary cause to a primary cause. Um, but there are other things like, uh, which still play into the primary causes, like too much caffeine. For example, mm. caffeine can cause insulin resistance in part because it, it activates stress hormones. And, and I don't mean to tell people never drink coffee, don't ever drink a Diet Coke or anything, but I do think it behooves the person to be mindful of the dose. Um, and and, and I, so I do think that it's better to kind of scale it down a bit if you can. Um, but I've found that people who struggle with controlling their glucose levels, even though they are very strict with a low-carb diet, if it's not their sleep, very often it's that they're drinking too much caffeine. And that as they start to dose their caffeine down, they find that their glycemic variability starts to quiet down as well. Mm, interesting. Do you think that there is some kind of intersection with caffeine consumption earlier in the day as you're uh, experiencing this kind of dawn phenomenon? Yeah, that's a Jeff, wonderful question. I don't know. I've not seen, <laughs> I have not seen studies that have compared uh, kind of temporality, you know, a bolus of caffeine in morning versus evening. Those data might be there. I don't think they are, but I mean, it's tempting to speculate that caffeine in the morning may amplify the dawn phenomenon, which itself is this, you know, temporary insulin resistance caused by increased stress hormones. Mm -hmm. But I'd hate to, I wouldn't want to be bold enough to tell anyone not to drink caffeine in the morning. I'm not going <laughs> to take on that fight. I know. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, Rick Johnson and David Perlmutter both put books out, I think, last year or the year before, uh, specifically talking about uric acid. Um, and, oh, yeah. Yeah, know, thanks. So maybe you want to just pull on that for one second. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I totally appreciate that. Yeah. In, uh, in fact, I knew there was a secondary one I wasn't mentioning. In fact, Rick and I are collaborating on a project. Oh, great. I consider him a good friend. I just really love him and respect him deeply as a scientist and just a good a good guy, yeah, a, a real gentleman scientist. Um, he, we're doing a study now. And, and so we find, I consider uric acid to be a secondary cause simply because of the lack of the evidence, you know, directly showing the causality in humans, for example. There's some evidence that might warrant it, but it also looks like whatever, whatever insulin resistance uric acid causes occurs through inflammation. That if you increase uric acid but block the inflammatory response to the uric acid, you don't you you protect the insulin sensitivity, and that's why I, I don't want to put it in a second in the primary range, even though it's absolutely relevant across you know a lot of studies and biomedical models. If you take out the inflammation, 
you appear to remove the insulin resistance that's caused by the uric acid. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, what I have tried to understand is this um, sort of the impact of uh, fructose, particularly like in high fructose corn syrup, which is you know ubiquitous in yep. I think eighty percent of the foods in the middle of the aisles, uh, or, or some forms of added sugar, um, and its relation to then this uric acid pathway, which was initially, as Rick pointed out, an adaptive advantage. So we sort of uh, silenced the uricase gene some 10 or 15 million years ago, which allowed us again to store fat to essentially signal our cells to become insulin resistant at certain times of the year, like in the fall, when you might harvest a bunch of fruit mm -hmm. and gorge mm -hmm. and binge on that and store some of that as fat because of, again, there was a, uh, an engineering such that it, it, you know, nature knew that, that, that scarcity was coming in the winter. But of course now with the over availability, any time of year to get any kind of food, basically dial it up in the palm of your hand, uh, we never have that scarcity, so we just keep storing and storing and storing. So it's an interesting, um, it's certainly an interesting uh, point of view. And uh, Oh, yeah. and I love it. Yeah. I think it is a fascinating point of view, and I endorse the general perspective and, and the view of sort of embracing the ideology of don't eat for winter, if you will, you know, bumper right. sticker, don't eat for winter. It's those foods in the late fall that want us to get fat. Right. Um, and it's not a coincidence that they're all starchy. Not only may they be coming with fructose, but they're also spiking insulin. And that's a hell of a combination. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's get into a little bit of the protocols that we can consciously adopt to address our insulin resistance. So, um, mm -hmm. so diet seems to be kind of the elephant in the room. You know, maybe we can start there. Uh, but I'd love yeah. to get your uh, viewpoints on deliberate cold therapy, exercise, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. So let's definitely start with diet. Um, and that's a, an enormous topic, but I'll summarizing it down. To me, the most effective dietary approach is to lower insulin. Whatever you can do, bring insulin down. And I believe that's best summed up in four, in four pillars that underpin an effective strategy for promoting an improvement in insulin resistance and then weight loss, of course, as well, that comes with that. The first one is control carbohydrates. So make sure that you are being mindful of, be starch smart, if you will, where eat fruits and vegetables, but don't drink them. And be very careful with other, you know, other sources of carbs like, like grains, you know, rice, cereal, bread, etc. The second rule um, goes along pretty closely with the third, the second being prioritize protein. Protein does promote satiety. It increases metabolic rate. I'm an enormous, an enormous advocate of, of really making sure you're getting protein. That's the one of the three macros that I think it's important for people to really be mindful of, am I getting enough? But in nature, if there, is no, there is no exception to this. Protein always comes with fat. And the third rule is don't fear fat. Again, in nature, they always come together. That's how we should eat it. When we eat fat with the protein, we digest the protein better because the bile acids that are released when we eat fat facilitate the proteolytic enzymes that help the gut break down protein. So we digest it better. We get more of that good stuff. So don't fear fat. Also, fat has no impact on insulin whatsoever. 
This has been published in multiple papers. We're about to publish our own human study that we did here at BYU showing the very same thing. Some people debate that. It, it is beyond debate. I've never seen evidence that suggests there's an insulin response where fat increases insulin to any significant level. It's always statistically insignificant, which is to say there's no effect. And then the fourth and final pillar, I would say after these three have been adopted, don't start with the fourth. I think it's more important that the fourth step come after the first three, which is learn how to eat better, then frequent fasting. Right, You can see my affection for alliteration. Control carbs, prioritize protein, don't fear fat, frequent fasting. <laughs> now, with insulin levels being low, you're learning to use your own fat for fuel. You're sort of training your body to do that. Then fasting becomes something that's more feasible. And so I'm an enormous advocate of fasting. Fasting is the antithesis of elevated insulin. Insulin is the hormone of the fed state. So if we are in a fasted state, insulin cannot be elevated. Indeed, it's insulin that defines the fed or the fasted state. So if you're fasting, insulin is low. If insulin is low, you become more insulin sensitive, which is a healthy adjustment. And insulin levels, of course, have come down significantly. So those are the main pillars that no matter what else I will mention in the next few minutes, if you aren't doing that, you're, you're gonna have a marginal benefit. But let's say you are doing this and you just even want a little more, then it's contrasting temperature therapies. Whether it is sauna, which has a significant effect at increasing blood flow, improving insulin sensitivity, increasing metabolic rate, or whether it is cold therapy, which has a significant effect at improving insulin sensitivity and inducing you know, mental wellness, calming anxiety, and increasing metabolic rate. Both of those contrasting therapies have a significant improvement I'm not an authority on those topics. I am inclined, however, to highlight a study that was recently published, which found that if someone goes through a resistance training exercise and then ice baths after, it may offset some of the muscle protein synthesis. Mm -hmm. It may blunt some of it. So my encouragement is certainly to engage in cold immersion. I, I'm an enormous advocate of that or ice therapy, ice bath therapy but don't do it right after your workout. I think it may be better to do it at a different time of the day entirely, um, just because of that one study showing some, some degree of blunting of the muscle protein synthesis. Um, so I'm an enormous advocate, but do it at a different time than right after the workout. Okay, I want to ask you a question as it pertains to my own combination of some of these protocols that you just mentioned. Um, so I'm trying to reduce my glycemic load, for example, through a low carbohydrate diet or eating the carbs that don't carry a big glycemic mm -hmm. load, for example. Um, so I'm bringing my blood glucose down by extension, bringing insulin down. Um, also doing an intermittent fasting protocol. I'm on more or less, not a neurotic fundamentalist protocol, but more or less a 16-8 protocol uh, mm -hmm. where I'm, you know, condensing my eating window into an eight-hour period, kind of more, more or less in the middle of the day. And then my cold water therapy, sometimes in an ice plunge if I have access to it, but a cold shower, which almost everyone has access to it. So I'm trying to combine those protocols in a way that that makes sense based on some of the things that we're talking about. And for me, I'll, I'll 
generally take my first bite of food around 10 30 or 11 a.m in the morning now we can debate what the best fasting window is but mm. let's just <laughs> go with yeah. that for now at around 10 25 let's say i'm in a very kind of uh, I, my blood glucose hence my insulin is very low at that juncture and that is when i take my cold shower or my ice plunge uh because when I do that, my core body temperature will plummet. My body will then, the kind of internal thermostat in my body will want to raise my core temperature back up into that Goldilocks zone around 98.6. And we can talk maybe a little bit about brown fat at this juncture, but in order to engage in that thermogenesis, to raise my body temperature back up, my body needs fuel. And in the absence of any glucose to provide that fuel, it will essentially look to break down triglycerides into fatty acids and ketones. Hence, I will burn fat. And um, I've seen that just in my own Petri dish and of one Jeff experiment to be highly impactful um, at, uh, at, well, I, I lost a tremendous amount of weight and tremendous amount of kind of visceral adiposity combining the protocols in that way. Does that make much sense to you? It sure does. Yeah. So the muscle is, is really the, the main um, consumer of energy in the body, just because we have so much of it. And uh, especially when we're shivering, then it's like the muscle is kind of mini exercising and its metabolic demands go up. And the muscle is an indiscriminate eater. It doesn't care what you're going to feed it. If it has glucose, it's going to eat glucose. If it has fat, it's going to eat fat. It does not care. And so in that sense, there's no question as you have gone into that fasting, you will, the muscle will be more eating fat than it is glucose. No question. Um, now that in and of itself is neither good nor bad because it still matters. Well, what else are you going to eat? You know, the body's going to want to, you know, perhaps restore some of what was lost, perhaps. But if insulin's low, it, it, it can't. Um, so I, I am similar to you where when I have uh, an ice therapy, uh, cold bath, uh, I use a little ice barrel, mm -hmm. um, I will go in in the morning and that, uh, so I will go on a walk and then now I do not know the evidence to, to, to compare, um, ice bath with in morning versus afternoon versus evening. I'm not sure. Um, I would be reluctant to do it in the evening simply because I already sleep a little hot. And paradoxically, if you've gotten really cold, you're going to have a rebound later. Um, and I don't want to have that while I'm sleeping. Um, right. So, if, you know, again, paradoxically, some people who sleep hot will actually find if they have a warm bath, they will sleep cooler um, because the body has constricted the blood vessels and is cooling down throughout right. the night. Um, so I don't think it would be valuable in the evening, but I am speculating. I have found that when I do it in the morning, especially uh, in the Northern Hemisphere as winter's settling in as you and I are recording this, um, where if I'm getting into the ice barrel at around 6 a.m., you know, to get all this stuff done before my kids are awake um, and I start making breakfast for them about 6.30, uh, I like to do it when I can see the sun, you know, where in the morning it helps me wake up. I want to see the early sun to start my clock to help me sleep better. But when the sun isn't rising till 9 o'clock, I need my internal clock to have already started. And I have found that if I climb into that ice barrel, I am turning mm -hmm. on my clock. It <laughs> wakes me up yeah. right when I get in there. And so for me, and this is some speculation, 
I find that I will sleep much, much better and just feel better if I've done it in the morning than if I do it later in the day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's talk a little bit about exercise and the relationship between muscle and glucose and insulin and how these things play together um, mm -hmm. and the importance of resistance training and strength training in, in, in this equation. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I like how you teed that up. I am I'm an advocate of exercise and the best exercise is the one you will do. So let's just make that clear up front. But if you have the ability and the interest, then resistance training, you know, minute per minute is going to yield a greater benefit metabolically than, than aerobic training. I actually, more, the older I'm getting, the stronger feelings I have on men in particular, um, only engaging in aerobic or even primarily aerobic. I, I don't believe it's healthy for men, actually. And maybe I'm influenced by what I see. For example, when I go into the sauna here on campus at my university, it sometimes occurs that I overlap with the men's cross-country team. Mm -hmm. And these are young men who are, you know, 20 years old who could, you know, run me to death, but they look like they're 70 years old <laughs> from, from the neck down. Yeah. They're, they're, they're sort of shrunken in and their, their spines are sort of curved. And of course, they're incredible athletes. But I look at that and I just, I, I wonder how healthy that is for a man um, as he gets older. And, and, and in contrast, from the neck down, I look younger and more robust than these men, young men do who are half my, less than half my age um, because I have muscle. I have meat on my bones. I look more vibrant, of course, from the neck up. I look like I'm an 80 year old, but I got <laughs> some city miles on me. Yeah, but even still, um, I, I do think it's very, very important for people to focus on resistance training. If, if you can increase your muscle mass or maintain it, you are making the, the drain. You know, if we look at a sink and we're filling the sink with glucose and insulins being affected by this, and we want it to be as empty as possible at any moment, the more muscle you have, the bigger the drain is getting the more easy it is for you to keep glucose at a low level because you're just running through your glucose so quickly. Muscle is what's responsible for that. Muscle is the affecting the, the diameter of that drain. So I'm an enormous advocate. Engage in some resistance training every day if you can, even if it's a modest amount. Work your muscles to failure, even if it's a higher number of sets. Um, just challenge the muscle to stimulate them to grow any way you can. And then facilitate that growth by making sure you eat good protein and good fat. Yeah. No, I found that muscle hypertrophy was central to my blood glucose management. And glucose isn't always the perfect proxy to insulin, yep. um, but it's the one that I got. It's the one we can do. Yep. <laughs> it's, a, it's a little easier molecule to, um, to measure, I suppose, on, at the consumer level it is. at this point. It is. Um, so what I found is that I became more interested in resistance training. That was a, uh, um, helped me regulate my blood glucose. And I think I, I, I've read or I've heard you say that muscle at rest still requires insulin to uptake uh, glucose. But when you're contracting muscle, you can, uh, it, it's a potent glucose sink in the absence of insulin. Is that right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, sure is. Yeah. I, I'm very grateful you're bringing that up. 
that was a point I should have made. That muscle is is the is the biggest of the insulin dependent tissues when it comes to glucose. Many tissues like the liver just have open doors. Glucose can come running in anytime it starts to go up in the blood. It's mm. always open. The door is always open for glucose to come in. Muscle has a closed door. Insulin comes and knocks on the door and then the door opens at rest like you and I right now. It's the increase in insulin that allows the glucose to come in and thereby bring the glucose back down. But if the muscle is exercising, the doors open. Mm. Uh, the exercising muscle gets so demanding that it tells insulin, I can't wait for you. Uh, I'm just going to open on its own, which is a brilliant system in the body because insulin wants to store energy. That is the opposite of exercise. In exercise, we don't want to be storing or building things up. We want to be breaking down. Right. We need to combust. We need the energy. And if insulin were elevated, it would be stopping the ability of the body to mobilize energy to feed the hungry muscle. So it's a brilliant system where because the muscle has its back door that it can open to allow the glucose in, we can keep insulin low during exercise, which is what happens. When we exercise, insulin drops fast and it will stay down during the exercise session and hopefully low beyond depending on what we eat once we get done exercising. Mm -hmm. So through addressing uh, diet, exercise, um, cold and heat deliberate therapy, there's a lot of protocols that we can adopt to manage insulin and manage blood glucose. Maybe let's talk about a few of the drug options that are circulating around, some of which have mm -hmm. been around for some time. Um, of course, there is just tons of people who are diabetic that actually take insulin. Um, so I'm curious to get your thoughts yeah. just on that itself, which is quite basic. Um, but then, you know, there's metformin and, and berberine, and then of course, more of the weight loss drugs that have become in vogue more recently, uh, semaglutide, uh, better known as yep. Ozempic or Wagovi. So um, start wherever you want there. Yeah, and we yeah, can yeah. You, you, wound me, you wound me up, Jeff. Yeah. Now I'll start. <laughs> okay. So yeah, so it, it's, I love to, I love starting with insulin. Now let's just make sure we're framing the conversation correctly, which is what are the drug interventions that aim to improve diabetes? And by that, I mean type two diabetes. So these would all be considered anti-diabetic medications. Um, uh, so, so let's just lay that up front. And we've not talked about type 2 diabetes yet. We've talked about type 1. Type 1, we're putting on the shelf. We're not talking about type 1 diabetes right now. We're talking about type 2, which is a reflection of insulin resistance. So let me just explain that briefly, and then that helps me explain the problems with many of these medications. So with type 2 diabetes, it is a disease that is singularly defined by the glucose. We only are measuring the glucose, in part because it's so easy to measure. You and I are doing it every moment of the day at the moment. Um, so that is the defining uh, metric with type 2 diabetes, unfortunately. Because while the glucose is elevated, and that's the one we are doggedly measuring every time they come in, behind the scenes is the humble hormone insulin, which decades before the glucose has ever moved, has increased three or four or five times what it used to be. So if we were able to shift from a glucose-centric paradigm to an insulin-centric paradigm, we would detect the problem decades before the glucose ever changes. 
that is incredibly impactful. So mm. let me say that again. If we were able to look at type 2 diabetes through the lens of hyperinsulinemia and insulin resistance, we would detect it when it was the insulin that was elevated and the glucose was still normal. Because this scenario is insulin resistance. You need more and more and more insulin to keep the glucose in a normal range. That's insulin resistance. Now, however, when the body eventually becomes so resistant to its own insulin, that even though insulin is still higher than it used to be, it can no longer keep glucose in check. And this is when the muscle and the liver, for example, starts to become insulin resistant. Now the glucose starts to climb. And then based on conventional clinical care, we detect the problem and diagnose them as having prediabetes, which is just insulin resistance, or type 2 diabetes. Now, with this paradigm in mind, that the problem is our obsession with glucose and our ignorance or overlooking of insulin, it frames the conversation to highlight the issue with so many of these medications. So for example, we take the average type 2 diabetic who has high glucose and high insulin. And we say, we just need to correct your glucose. And so to do this, we're just going to give you more insulin. Well, unfortunately, in, in the conversation we've just spent the last hour on, it's insulin resistance that's contributing to all of these chronic diseases. And so it's no surprise that when we take this person, glucose here, insulin here, we push the insulin up and we push the glucose down as a result of pushing the insulin up, we make them gain a lot of weight. They get much fatter. Mm -hmm. They are three times more likely, three times more likely to die from heart disease, twice as likely to die from cancer, twice as likely to develop Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. When we give a type 2 diabetic insulin, we are killing them faster. It's, it, it is like giving an alcoholic another glass of wine, hoping it will cure their alcoholism. We're giving them more of the very thing that's caused the problem, all with the best of intentions, Mm -hmm. because we have the wrong paradigm. We believe that it's the glucose that's the problem, when in reality, the hyperglycemia is just one of the many symptoms of the insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. Now, yes, go ahead. Yeah, well, just to put an exclamation point uh, at the end of uh, that, you know, so much of our public discourse is also based around like, you know, capping insulin costs right now. And for, like you said, with the best of intentions, but it... It is in. It keeps us in that glucose paradigm, right? Where it's like instead of attacking the upstream causes of what of the insulin resistance, we're just attacking the symptoms of the glucose, and then hopefully lowering the drug cost or something. Which is, uh, anyways, um, that's a very powerful statement, Ben. Thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I know it's a strong one, but I hope it is one that leaves an impression on people. Yeah. And then other drugs really cover the gamut, where you have some drugs like metformin, which if I have to grade any of these drugs, I actually generally would give metformin the highest grade, mm -hmm. but I still believe it's overused, um, especially out of the context of diabetes, where metformin can directly improve insulin sensitivity at tissues like the muscle. But the mechanism whereby it improves insulin sensitivity is very surprising, which is that metformin it actually compromises the ability of the mitochondria to work. It reduces mitochondrial function. Now, it's a quirk of biochemistry that in the process, that actually increases glucose use, but it doesn't change the fact that it does have a harmful consequence at the, at the mitochondria, which, is, which 
leads us to not be surprised at all when we learn about the human evidence that shows if you take someone and exercise train them, their, in, their, their mitochondrial um, uh, capacity gets better. Their mitochondria get bigger and more robust, and they become more insulin sensitive. When you exercise train them and give them metformin, you undo all of those benefits and put them right back to where they were. And so all of these longevity gurus who are advocating metformin as a longevity drug, I heartily laugh in their face. And I think, (laughs) how can you be espousing a drug that is damaging mitochondria and, and directly offsetting the mitochondrial benefits that come from exercise when in the next breath, you're also telling the person to exercise? Those two things don't work. Hmm. So I think metformin can be used, but it should be used prudently. And in particular, it should be used with a diabetic who's overweight, who can't exercise due to other complications. Hmm. Then I think metformin is warranted. If this is a person who can or is going to start exercising, then maybe you start with metformin and start dosing it down as they start getting more physically active. Otherwise, you are offsetting the metabolic and mitochondrial benefits of the exercise, and that to me is foolish. Now, there are a host of other anti-diabetic drugs, but just for the sake of time, let's jump right into semaglutide, which is used in those two drugs you mentioned, whether it is Ozempic, um, which which was the original anti-diabetic dose, Mm-hmm. Um, at a very, very low dose, relatively speaking, or whether it's it's new dose up to you know several times higher, where it's being used in Wegovy um, to combat obesity. <clears throat> when GLP-1 agonists like semaglutide were first used, um, I actually gave them a good grade. Uh, I consider that the benefits of improving glucose levels and thereby improving insulin was very, very good, and the consequences appeared to be very modest. Um, and, and one of the main mechanisms of action whereby semaglutide or Ozempic was improving diabetes is that it powerfully inhibits glucagon. And if glucagon comes down, then the liver is making less glucose. So then glucose will come down. And then if glucose is at a lower level, then so too is insulin. And so the entire spectrum of type 2 diabetes starts to get better at that low dose of semaglutide. Now there are still consequences, but they generally weren't really noticed until we started ramping up the dose by multiples. And the most, the, the, the I would, I believe that the most consequential negative effects are twofold. And that is what it's doing to the intestines and what it's doing to fat cells. Now, I, again, I have to debate with myself internally as mm-hmm. to how deep we get into the fat cells because it's such a big yeah. discussion, but, <clears throat> Let's start with the gut part of it, um, where um, used at higher doses, we will say that um, Wegovy is therapeutic for obesity because it reduces cravings and reduces hunger, which is a nice way of saying you feel really sick to your stomach mm. and you feel nauseated because that's what happens. These drugs have been shown to sometimes um, lethally inhibit the intestine's ability to move food. There's a process called peristalsis in the guts. It's the process whereby we swallow food, spends a little time in the stomach, and then it starts being squished Mm. down the intestinal tract, ultimately making its way out of the rectum. But semaglutide basically stops that process. And in some people, it becomes lethal, where they have food that is sitting in their stomach 
for days at a time. Mm. This has become so known now that if someone who's on Wigovi is who's is going in for a surgery, they'll typically tell a person to fast for 24 hours before the surgery to reduce the risk of them vomiting up food and then breathing it into their lungs and causing a sort of pneumonia and potentially killing themselves. But they find that in people who were on this drug, even though they're telling them to fast for a day, they still have a stomach full of food because all the food they're eating is just staying in the stomach. It's not moving through the intestines like it's supposed to. Mm. Uh, so that, of course, can become very, very lethal. Um, so that's, and then the effect on the fat cell. Uh, very, very briefly, very briefly. <laughs> we'll do another episode fully yeah, on in fat fact, cells, okay? But, in fact, but, we will need to, because that's yeah. such a big topic. Yeah. I'll just say that it, it also changes fat cell physiology. Um, the fat cell is sort of the part of this conversation that I could have invoked at multiple instances, but haven't because it just sucks all the oxygen out of the room. So there are also changes at fat cells that worry me that if a person ever decides to get off the drug, because they either can't afford it or they're tired of feeling sick, then there are, there's going to be a significant rebound in weight gain because of this multiplication of fat, albeit very small fat cells that are shrinking. But once they start eating again, uh, presumably eating the way they used to, now they have literally more fat cells than they did before they started. And so their potential to gain weight is higher than it was before they ever started the drug. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is a little geeky. Um, but does the inhibition of glucagon through these GLP-1 agonists like Ozempic, does that inhibit one from going into ketosis? Because as I understand, you know, glucagon is also responsible for telling the liver to release some glycogen or and also engage in some gluconeogenesis to create some glucose, but also can signal this process of lipolysis, the breakdown of triglycerides into, into fatty acids and ketones. And so in the, essentially, if you're unable to, if you're inhibiting glucagon, do you essentially always keep the body out of ketosis? And, and, and would that, might that be one of the side implications of, of Ozempic, do you think? Yeah, good. Very, that's a very good question. So that question has not directly been answered. Actually, looking at the degree to which semaglutide, the drug itself, the molecule itself, inhibits or activates um, ketogenesis, that is unknown. The direct effect that you're invoking is worth mentioning, which is namely, glucagon is implicated in being a necessary player in activating ketogenesis. I say implicated because the data are actually kind of conflicting mm. to show how whether it is essential or not. I would say that I doubt um, GLP-1 agonists are going to overall inhibit ketogenesis only because even if glucagon provides some kind of stimulatory signal, the, inhib the inhibitory effect that insulin has on ketogenesis is way bigger yeah. than any stimulatory effect that glucagon may elicit. So insulin's inhibition is way stronger than glucagon's activation. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that they've stopped eating basically and their insulin has come down a lot, um, they certainly do get into ketosis. We know that. Um, but whether they might have a slightly higher level of ketosis if it weren't for the direct effect on glucagon, that is uh, remains to be seen. Yeah. Yeah, it, you know, I'm not anti-pharmaceutical or anti-medication at all. Uh, I, I think ev every situation needs to be examined rigorously. 
It does seem to me that the Ozempic craze in some ways uh, absolves people of some of the other changes that they might need to make, like dietary, for example. So if you're taking Ozempic and you're getting that satiety and that slow um, gastric emptying through the retardation of of Mm -hmm. peristalsis or or whatever the mechanism is, um, in some ways it's sort of like letting you off the hook from actually focusing on some of the more rudimentary changes that one could adopt in their life. Uh, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, I believe that these drugs give a false sense of self-discipline where we say, oh my, I, it's so much easier for me to control my cravings. We think that we've actually learned how to make the lifestyle changes and the grit necessary to truly change our habits and our appetites, which is very difficult to do. Um, it, these are very challenging things, deeply ingrained habits. We think we've overcome them. And yet we haven't. It's an artificial accomplishment induced entirely by the drug. So once the drug is gone, it's no surprise that the evidence suggests all the cravings come raging back. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ben, it's such a treat to be with you. You are such an incredibly thorough and rigorous uh, articulator of, of so much important information um, you know, insulin resistance and metabolic health are really, for me, and I think for most people at the top of the list, uh, most people that, are, that know, because it's, um, as you say, so connected to so many of these chronic diseases um, when we didn't even talk about really much about cancer um, mm-hmm. um, or really about heart disease too much. So we'll have to uh, round, have it, round, two. round two, and we'll get into fat cells and, and, and yeah. some of that stuff because that is a, also a whole fascinating world that you you unpack with uh, tremendous eloquence. So, so grateful for all of your work and for being able to spend time with you. Oh, the feelings mutual. Thanks so much. Great to be continued. Thanks a lot for listening to my conversation with Dr. Benjamin Bickman. If you want to learn an effective plan to reverse and prevent chronic disease, check out his book, Why We Get Sick, The Hidden Epidemic at the Root of Most Chronic Disease and How to Fight It. And if you enjoy the show and would like to receive 30 days of free all access to commune membership, well, simply write us a review, preferably a good one. On Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the review section and tap write a review, then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your review to gain access to more than 130 courses featuring the world's top authors and doctors and thought leaders, all free for 30 days. And while you're there, make sure you're subscribed. And of course, feel free to reach out to me directly any old time at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week, including Jacob Laub, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Silvana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. They are such a great team. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you.